Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date with all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now, last week on the show, we talked to Joe Gibbs, who's Business Development Manager at Lero, the Irish Software Research Centre about automotive systems like self-driving cars. This week, our techcentral.ie editor, Niall Kitson, is doing a deeper dive and chatting with some of Ireland's foremost researchers from the centre about the technology that is changing the way we drive and a lot more besides. To start us off, Niall met with Dr Edward Jones, whose research is looking at how sensors, cameras and even networks combine to make it driving safer. Part of the discussion that is being had at the moment when it comes to automotive systems is is the car and that's pretty much going to be most people's first point of interaction with a fully automotive system. Do you think this is the way that it's going to go, that the car will be sort of the, the poster child for letting people put their trust into you know machines that they deal with but don't necessarily have control of? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it will, if only because it's sort of a very, very much a kind of a common everyday experience for a lot of people. So it's probably fair to say that, yes, it will be kind of one of the one of the primary and one of the first uh, platforms by which people will interact with uh, autonomous systems or semi-autonomous systems. And it is a very common everyday experience. And it's also one that's kind of getting a lot, certainly getting a lot of discussion at the moment. Well, I guess that throws up um, a couple of um, problems when it comes to retaining the overall experience of driving, which people are very much used to, while integrating an awful lot of new technologies, um, particularly sensors and uh, cameras, which is, uh, and one would imagine the telecommunications networks as well, which all, all forming the backbone of the Internet of Things. So how do you strike that balance between bringing in things that are new to, to the driver without sort of bombarding them with additional systems that they may end up never using? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And I think it highlights the, the need to consider the human in all of this. Um, I suppose there is a tendency or maybe even a danger that there's such a focus on the technology and what the technology can do that it's easy to lose sight of well, what is actually needed here. Um, and I would say one of the big drivers here, certainly in autonomous vehicles, is, is around safety. So trying to focus, and that's kind of one of the, I suppose, one of the selling points really of autonomous systems is that they would be expected to be much safer, much more predictable and much safer. Um, so I suppose it's important to consider, well, what are the requirements in terms of safety? What are the features that really contribute to enhancing the, you know, the, the safety of the vehicle and trying to reduce the probability of accident? So that's one thing. So it really does require thinking about the user. Um, beyond that, then, of course, you know, if you consider what people might potentially do in the vehicle if they don't have to drive, um, you've got all sorts of possibilities there. Autonomous vehicles are being proposed as a very, very good platform to basically allow people to make better use of their time compared to driving. 
And even if that's just, you know, even something like the, the frustrating experience that most drivers have of kind of chugging along at five miles per hour in the traffic jam, there are so many more useful things you could do at that time. Um, so then you're talking about things like the connectivity and you mentioned things like, you know, 4G and 5G connectivity. Um, what can the connectivity of the vehicle enable in terms of, I suppose, uh, work-related activities? For example, people can check email and so on. But also things like sort of entertainment or infotainment, um, where you have technology in the vehicle that will allow people to kind of, you know, maybe look at, uh, do more entertaining tasks, play games, check their email, use social media and so on. But, but it's still, even in that case, it certainly does highlight the requirement to consider what is what, what are the user requirements, whatever the application happens to be. I think as well, there's probably a generational thing here as well in terms of, you know, acceptance. And um, even if you look at things like smartphones, and it, you know, it's kind of interesting to draw a parallel with the introduction of smartphones and, well, I suppose any new technology really, but particularly something like autonomous vehicles. Initially, uh, I mean, smartphones are achieving very, very high penetration now, but initially the, the penetration would have been highest among young people, you know, who would generally be more open to, to technology and they've grown up with technology. So I think over time you'll see something similar with um, autonomous vehicles as well. So initially it may well be the case that, you know, perhaps younger people will be more open, more accepting, more replace, will have more trust in the technology. And then over time, it will achieve greater penetration into the marketplace. Um, at the same time, of course, I think one of, the, one of the interesting use cases for autonomous vehicles is actually enabling people to drive who might not otherwise be able to. For example, elderly people. Um, you know, maybe the eyesight, their eyesight is failing, um, or maybe they have some physical impairment that might prevent them from driving. So there are interesting use cases like that where the introduction of autonomous technology actually enables people, it improves their lifestyle, it enables them to do things they might not have been able to do before. So I think those kind of things as well will sort of foster acceptance. But again, the key is to make sure that the, the technology is designed and introduced to meet the needs of the users. So the, the actual technology, the signal processing, the image processing, the machine learning, that's all very important in terms of providing the functionality. But the human-machine interface is very, very critical as well. So let's look at that, that sort of nuts and bolts that you're working on, specifically signal and image processing. So tell us a little bit about uh, how your work is breaking down in these areas. So my, my group, fundamentally what we do is we develop signal processing, image processing and machine learning algorithms um, for a variety of tasks that would form part of the, the core technology of uh, an autonomous system or an autonomous vehicle. Um, there are a number of different layers of technology, obviously, that will contribute to, you know, contribute to the intelligence of the vehicle. And we're sort of working sort of towards the edge um, where we take signals from sensors. Um, any car these days will have a variety of sensors. And, of course, sensors are fundamental to autonomous vehicles because they're the means by which the vehicle understands its surroundings. So what we do is we take those sensor signals, they might be cameras, uh, they might be standard kind of visible spectrum cameras, they might be infrared cameras for nighttime use and so on. We take those signals and we process them in different ways in order to extract useful information. Uh, and that, that work falls into two broad categories. 
um, although that's kind of evolving as well. One of those categories of work really is concerned with producing what you might call a, a good quality or a usable image or video, regardless of the content. So the sort of thing I'm talking about there, um, a good example would be the use of, for example, wide-angle lenses on cameras. Um, they allow a very wide field of view, so a lot of the surrounding environment can be seen by a single camera. But they introduce radial distortion. So that needs to be compensated for and removed. So before you ever actually do any processing on the uh, the, the image produced by that camera, you need to remove a certain amount of the distortion. Uh, another example of work that we've done in the area of video or image production would be considering the whole area of image quality and video quality in the automotive environment, um, which is interesting for, certainly in terms of, of it being a new application. Um, I mean, the notion of image quality and video quality is not new in itself. And I think most people would have some intuitive feel for what it means, you know, what you mean by a good quality picture or a good quality video, if only from the, in the consumer sense. So it's kind of, I think most people will have an idea of what, what looks good when you take a picture with your smartphone or, you know, you, you know whether it's a good quality picture or a poor quality picture, and then you compare that to a kind of a pro camera. Um, but the notion of video quality is actually quite different in applications like automotive and particularly autonomous systems because what people perceive as good quality could be quite different to what a computer vision system would perceive as good quality. They're really looking for different things. So some of the work we've done, we, we've looked at both aspects. Um, we've looked at image quality where the driver is still in control, but they have the aid, you know, for example, uh, of a rear view camera, which is scanning the rear of the vehicle and covering the blind spot. And we've also looked at the notion of quality, image quality and video quality for computer vision. And they are quite different. Even for drivers, the notion of what constitutes good quality is quite different to most consumers. For example, um, you might be driving at night or you might be reversing at night. So you may have a rear view camera to aid you in that maneuver. But what typically happens is, is that the kind of the, the gain of the camera, the camera adjusts itself to sort of enhance the image and try to make the best possible use of whatever light is there. Now that will allow you to see any objects that might be behind you, but it frequently results in a very, very grainy image, which most people might consider to be poor quality. But from the point of view of the, of the driver, that doesn't really matter as long as they can see the objects in the scene. So the notion of quality is quite different even for a human driver. And then, of course, once you talk about autonomous systems, which are heavily based on computer vision algorithms, automatic processing of the video, it's quite different again. They're not really concerned with quality the way you or I as consumers might be concerned with it. They're more concerned, again, with the preservation of detail in the image. So you might look at a picture, you or I might look at a picture which has been enhanced and sharpened and had various processing done to it, and we might consider it looks very, very poor from a consumer's perspective. But it might have all the right detail enhanced, which will increase the performance of a computer vision system. Right. So instead of looking at something that is, you know, objectively shiny and, and quite good, we're, we're looking at systems that can identify the point at which an image becomes good enough to guide your action. 
Yes, I mean, the, the humans tend to be subjective in terms of, of their, their processing, except in, in, in most circumstances. But I suppose in a way, when you talk about objective versus subjective, in a sense, what we try to do with autonomous systems that are using computer vision is you try to focus more on the objective and you try to look at the content of the scene and, and you try to ensure that it's of sufficient quality. So just the point you made there about it being good enough, um, that can be fairly important in some applications, particularly with video, because one of the things that you often have to do with video is compress it in order to make the best use of, you know, for example, you may have limited bandwidth for transmission. So compression obviously introduces artifacts. So a very important question would be, well, how much can you compress it um, and still retain the quality of the image? So those are the types of questions that we have to deal with um, in, in the design of uh, image and signal processing systems for autonomous vehicles. And going beyond sort of things uh, like, you know, maneuvers like turning right and left and, and parking that, you know, uh, pe- people pretty much expect that that would be the, the red line uh, or, or the the mark of quality for a, an automotive car. There are different uses for video feeds, though, that you've been looking at. So if you could tell us a little bit about um, sort of, uh, I, I hesitate to say the view on video feeds, but uh, let's use that unfortunate choice of words anyway. Yeah. Um, again, as I say, I mean, it's, it's very common these days for um, vehicles to have multiple cameras, which essentially give you a 360-degree view of the environment surrounding it. Um, and that is, I suppose, one of the primary, not, not necessarily the only sensor that's used, but it's one of the primary sensors or primary modalities um, that would be used in autonomous vehicles for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, cameras are relatively low cost. Um, There's a lot of technology available for image processing. Um, And you can also discern a lot of information. You can can glean a lot of intelligence about the environment in terms of recognizing objects that you can necessarily get from, from other types of sensors. So they are very, very good from that point of view. In terms of the work that we do, as I say, we've looked at, at a wide variety of applications, but, but fundamentally it boils down to, if you think about the computer vision, it boils down to trying to detect objects of interest in the environment, be it uh, pedestrians or um, you know, cyclists, what might be called vulnerable road users, or perhaps other vehicles, or um, buildings, uh, infrastructure, fixed infrastructure, just to allow the car to kind of get a sense of, of where it is and what's in its environment. And of course, the objective, certainly from a safety point of view, is to try and detect what objects are likely to be a problem. For example, is there a pedestrian 50 meters down the road who's about to walk out in front of the vehicle? It's important that the car would be, if it's operating autonomously, it's important that it would be able to detect that person. Or is there a car in front behaving erratically or is there a car coming towards you that's about to change lane? So it's very, very much at at a kind of, you know, at the cold face of detecting the objects in the environment. And one of the, I suppose, one of the really important aspects of autonomous vehicles is that there's a very, very hard real-time requirement um, where you have vehicles, which, which doesn't necessarily exist in all applications in computer vision, where you're talking about vehicles on a road, maybe traveling at, you know, if it's a highway or a motorway, they could be traveling at relatively high speeds. But even in a town, 
in, in uh, an urban environment where the speed limit is lower, you're still talking about very little time to react if something happens. And some of the environments can be very, very complex indeed with an awful lot happening and where events can happen very quickly. So there is that very hard real-time reaction, uh, real-time requirement, and a low response time is critical to allow these systems to operate effectively. I think that raises a really interesting um, potential area um, when it comes to uh, identifying, say, dangerous stretches of road or blind corners, that sort of thing, because we, we already have... you know signs uh saying you know accident black spot uh, approaching but say if you were to have uh, a sensor or some sort of um um yeah i guess a, a sensor sort of advertising the um the arrival of a, a black spot that the car will automatically adjust um its its behavior and um, do you think this is the sort of um real world solution we'll we'll see i think the the i suppose if you consider the technology that's available um and you have technology in the vehicle itself, but, you know, you mentioned connectivity before. So connected vehicles does open up other possibilities in terms of you know, storing that type of information and sharing it between vehicles. So I think certainly there, there there's great potential in terms of applications, new applications and use cases um, that can be developed and um, accounted for, really. So the type of thing you're talking about there is, you know, I certainly say it's, it's entirely feasible in terms of warning vehicles where there's an upcoming black spot uh, and the vehicle can take. So, so there's two things, really. One is there's a stretch of road which is inherently dangerous, and that's, that's part of That's one level of information. But also, of course, if there happen to be other vehicles in the vicinity, that adds an extra layer of danger as well, which the vehicle will need to take into account using its own sensors. So really, it's a combination of both. You have kind of information about the, the driving conditions generally, but then you have um, sort of, again, coming back to that real-time requirement where the vehicle still needs to be able to monitor its own environment. And if something unusual happens, it's, it needs to be able to react. So we're looking at sort of there, there's almost sort of a public policy element into this as well, that if, if you pay your road tax, perhaps there should be some sort of parallel investment in a, in a connected infrastructure as well. I suppose that that's one of the things. And again, there's a lot of talk about this as well. Um, vehicles in themselves can be can certainly be equipped to operate autonomously and have a certain amount of intelligence so they can monitor their own environments. Um, but equally, you know, there, there is great potential as well if that connectivity was put in there as well. Um, and you know, but I mean, there is a lot that can be done with existing technology, even four G and five G technology and cellular technology. Um, but yeah, there there is a public policy um, question as well around you know the, the the funding of infrastructure and the uh, the development of the infrastructure to enable these new applications as well. So. Given that we're, we're, these technologies are pretty much on the cusp of going mainstream, I mean, the, the raw materials are pretty much there. It's kind of tweaking the, the machine learning algorithms behind them to, to make them useful. Where do you see this technology going beyond the connected car? I think certainly, you know, as, as you said at the outset, the car is, is possibly one of the more visible and most common platforms that will be used for the introduction of this type of technology. But, but certainly, 
you know there are there's there's scope in other areas as well um there's all they're always going to be kind of you know if you like sort of niche applications um that will use this but but if you consider we say common sort of well publicly understood or kind of well-known applications you could consider other forms of public transport as well and um, so for example we're talking about maybe passenger vehicles is where the, the focus of this has been and the focus of our work is but equally you could see this being applied to buses or other forms of public transport and a lot of the same issues arise so i think certainly there are you will start to see the technology um being deployed in other situations as well but again you know the, the key thing here is understanding what are the requirements and what are the user requirements and um, so that the technology can be deployed appropriately and where it's needed so it's very much finding the uh i don't want to say a solution in search of a problem but it's not that far off actually um, yeah, as you, as you say, the technology certainly has come on in leaps and bounds. Um, no, a lot, a lot remains to be done, particularly in those complex environments, you know, where there's a lot more that can happen and a lot, a lot of things going on. Um, but the, and again, coming back to the human element, um, there is this phase of acceptance and, and all of the other elements that need to be in place for widespread deployment and widespread acceptance of the technology. So, you know, regulatory and things like that, public policy issues as well. So you've got all this other activity going on in parallel as well. Um, again, I think what's what's interesting certainly is, you know, it's not just the technology. This this is one area in particular where it's important to kind of consider the human element as well. And that's, that's a very important consideration that, that you know, it's, it's easy to overlook when you see all this exciting technology. That was Dr. Edward Jones. Now, even though we might have the technology, you can't discount the human element when it comes to control and general common sense. One man who's been looking at how to keep us relevant is Greg Proven, a professor at the Computer Science Department at UCC and a Lero researcher. So, Greg, I guess to start our conversation, one of the fundamentals of uh, automotive systems is the idea of understanding the place of the human in all this. So when we're looking at systems, they're not just designed from the case of software talking to software. There has to be a space uh, for the human in there somewhere, uh, doesn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that that's one of the key things that, that is a driver in, in the revolutionary changes in all of these autonomous systems. So, for example, if you were to take um, the future of autonomous cars, they're clearly you have to have all range of different human-in-the-loop capabilities. So if you were to have a car that could go from fully autonomous to having a driver have full control, there you have to understand what does the driver want at any particular moment. And if you wanted to change dynamically the level of autonomy, the car would have to know is a human at, at this moment capable of taking over control of the vehicle? And so the human awareness is, is, is extremely important. And the other thing is the notion of human intention. So if you think about some cars today that have steering control and they might try and lock out a driver if they think that an accident might be possible, if you had a... a a, an, a more intelligent vehicle that could understand that, you know, really, the, 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 you know, the car needed to 
overtake and you know this was critical to getting somewhere on time then you might slightly modify the lockout control of the system so th this is on the forefront of all of the car manufacturers you know they're trying to figure out how do we blend humans and the automation software in the most seamless fashion I guess when you're talking about something as dynamic as driving, uh, this presents the problem of recognizing if a behavior is something that is recurrent, like, say, somebody that has, you know, that has a habit of speeding versus something that is an individual error. So, you know, something very out of the ordinary. So how does a complex system deal with that sort of, um, I guess, the habit versus the, the outlier, the, the unintentional deviation? So, so the way most people are dealing with that is putting machine learning into the system. So what you'd want to do is you'd want to learn what's called a human model. So that is exactly as you were talking about, a well-defined set of intentions and desires of a particular driver. So, so one of the things I'm working on right now is, you know, just a, a fragment of this. This is a car climate control system. And the idea is that you'd put some extra sensors in there and you could monitor when a human is, you know, maybe feeling a little bit too warm or a little bit too cold. And it can dynamically modify the, the climate control system without the human having to go about modifying the, the, the system him, himself or herself. You could also have um, a monitor that would know which driver is in the car and you could automatically adjust the system. You could automatically adjust which radio stations you tune into. Um, and, you know, this is viewed as very important from the car manufacturer's point of view because this is kind of the personalization and this is what would be a strong inducement for somebody to, let's say, buy... Um, a Volvo rather than a Volkswagen. Yeah, and I guess that level of driver monitoring is something the insurance industry perhaps would be very interested in. Oh, they're, they're extremely interested in that. And, you know, clearly what um, you want to have is, you know, a, a system that would monitor is the driver becoming drowsy. And if there were some automation that could recognize the driver becoming drowsy and try and um, alert the driver or in the worst case, to take over control temporarily, let's say to, you know, pull the car over to the curb and stop it so that um, accidents are avoided. So, you know, one of the, the really nice things about um, the future of autonomy in automobiles is that it can significantly reduce the number of accidents. And because over 90% of all of these accidents on the road are due to driver error, there, there's a huge leeway in that. I guess the, the concern at the moment when it comes to driver error is um, what happens when you have a system-to-system -system error uh, where you might have a faulty set of sensors and you might have one uh, one automated car ends up crashing into another. Do, do you think that sort of fear factor is there that this is sort of the, you know, maybe the vehicle doesn't have the same reactions as a human, doesn't have the same common sense to be able to um, process a situation. Do you think that reticence is still there with people? I, I would say it's definitely there. Um, you know, I would be leery of stepping into a driverless taxi in Cork today. 
<laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't know many people who, who wouldn't be. Um, so I think we have to understand what these autonomous systems are good at and what we need to improve on. So um, they're very good at sensing and fast reactions. Where they are less um, comfortable is in, in situations where, for example, you might mistake uh, a situation due to poor lighting or, or, or things of that nature. These are technical hurdles that, that can be gotten over. I think the, the, the challenge is you know, negotiating very complex situations in urban traffic. You know, so, so one of the problems today is that um, these automated cars can be quite reticent to actually move through intersections, mm -hmm. right? And they don't understand, you know, the very subtle protocols that we as humans use on a daily basis about driving. And, you know, these are things that change from country to country. And, um, you know, th there's often eye contact that, that drivers would make to negotiate things. And so... That, that, I think, is what's really hard to program into these automated systems. Oh, I think that's a fascinating idea because uh, I, I remember being in Italy a couple of years ago and um, to, to say the road traffic situation was uh, adventurous would be would be somewhat, something of an understatement. Um, this is so uh, the idea that sort of the, the wave when somebody lets you through uh, a junction, that kind of thing, is... Uh, potentially a, a more significant aspect of, of driving than perhaps we would have thought before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and what we're seeing now is the subtlety of human-to-human -human interaction, and, and that's something that's extremely hard to program into a computer. So, um, you know, these systems, collision avoidance is, if, you know, if you can detect an imminent collision, the reaction rate is much faster than that of humans, especially as, as humans age. So, so those are areas that I think people understand well, but it's the, the, the subtlety of negotiation, communication, all of these things are, are quite challenging. And I guess there's the user interface element of it as well. I mean, if you're going to remove sort of the, the head shake, the hand wave, that sort of thing, how do you replicate that in a, an automated car? You know, is it, is it a light flash? Is it a specific pattern of flashes? And I, I guess coming up with a substitute to that is a, another significant challenge. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in some strong sense, when you have, um, you know, human machine interactions, let's say, so if you had a, a driver who could take control, that is probably harder from, um, you know, as you were saying, the, uh, you know, the interface specifications and, and, and designing good interface than if you had a fully automated car where, where you completely did away with that. Right, so th that that's something that that's really challenging, and you know this. So you're asking initially, well, what are some of the challenges? Is it purely computational, and, and absolutely not? So there's all range of human factors, engineering that that has to be incorporated in all of these systems. So when we're looking at the things that uh, we can control. Um, 
What were the easy problems in a sense? It, it, does it come down to reading sensor data and understanding sort of the, the twisty, turny country road or the, the straight highway? I mean, what are the easy bits that a system um, has to deal with uh, once we sort of factor out the problems that, that exist between the steering wheel and the, and the seat? Well, I think one of the easy problems is uh, motorway driving. So that that problem was looked at 40 years ago, and, and there's this concept called platooning. So basically the idea is on the motorway you'd have groups of cars who would be driving in lockstep, and that would be called a platoon. And so you would give over control of your car when you joined a platoon, and these cars would be driving very close together at an identical speed. And once you joined the platoon, you'd indicate to the platoon, well, where do I want to exit? And you'd just follow along. And then when you wanted to exit, you would get out of the platoon, and then the human would take over, and you would then drive away. So th- that that's pretty much a solved problem. And you know the benefit is that you can get a large collection of cars driving all at an identical speed, very closely packed together so you get more cars on the highway without co- without causing congestion the, the really hard bit is as you were saying the, the the twisty turny roads or driving in any of our cities you know th- that's where the amount of human interaction is significant and the the that's where you have to deal with the, the strong technical challenges of having sensors that can understand human intention so if somebody you know, gives you the nod that says, oh, oh, you can go through the intersection before me. You have to understand that. And if you don't, then that, that's where, you know, the automation system could actually cause an accident. Yeah. And when we're looking at negotiating uh, through cities, there is that urban planning aspect as well, where I'm sure there are, there are black spots that are um, quite difficult to negotiate. Is there a, a scope there for systems that sort of disengage at a certain point that effectively go, OK, this is the limit of our expertise here. We, we need to hand over to you for this bit. Well, I think the um, introduction of these autonomous vehicles is, is going to come in stages. And so... One of the things that people are looking at is to introduce the, the notion of platooning on motorways first and, and have humans drive for the most part in cities. But if you also look at the high-end cars, we're, we're having more and more niche applications. So, for example, um, Volkswagen and some of the other manufacturers allow self-parking. So basically, you, you pull up to your parking spot, you, you push a button, and the car parks itself for you. You have um, traction control, you have steering control. I think these are things that are going to come in in stages. And um, the, the, the really difficult bit would be how a driver can um, adaptively allow the car to take over control. So let's say you're driving into work and you've got a nice stretch of road and you might say, well, I'd love for the car to take over completely here. And then when you get to a busy intersection, you'd say, I, I prefer to just negotiate that myself. So is there a way to do that without having to have a lot of buttons to push and, and things like that? So um, th- I, I would say that would be... Well, or if a car manufacturer could solve that problem 
in an elegant way, they would probably become a market leader. So it sort of introduces the role of um, uh, conversation as the as the primary user interface with the with the car, maybe not the dashboard um, anymore. So I, I think that presents a really interesting user experience challenge uh, that you know potentially you will you will end up changing the driving experience as a whole, as opposed to just integrating new systems into what people already use. Yes, absolutely, and and. Um, the other thing you mentioned, road systems. So I would expect that as these autonomous vehicles become more and more common, you'd probably want to change our city structure or, for example, lights. Um, you know, you'd probably want to change lights. You'd want to have electronic signals that the cars could recognize. You know, th- th- there's a whole range of things that I'm sure would improve safety and security of these systems. I think sort of looking far down the road, the the picture that you're painting there in terms of, you know, sort of um, uh, traffic lights that send signals. uh, Are we sort of 10, 20, 30 years down the line going to see central management of traffic, perhaps from a a council office or something like that, where cars can be programmed to uh, to navigate um, streets most uh, most efficiently or to divert or this kind of thing? Is sort of central traffic management something we could see in the future? Oh, absolutely. So um, there's another um, SFI project on smart cities, and there are lots of other smart city projects around the world that are exactly looking into that. And so, you know, what what they would do is they would dynamically divert traffic based on the least congested areas. They would try and um, use central management to, to optimize the experience of visiting a city. Uh, you know, so for example, if you're a tourist and, and you're going to a new city, um, they could automatically recommend, here's a parking lot that has spaces, you know, we, we'll guide you there, and, you know, these are the attractions in, in that area. So, you know, these are things that, you know, we use um, software on our mobile phones to uh, provide, but, you know, we won't have the, the degree of information that some central management would have. That was Professor Greg Proven. Lastly, we go beyond the world of cars to look at the outer reaches of automotive systems to ask what lessons can technology learn from genetics? One man says that there's plenty of overlap and he's Connor Ryan, Associate Professor of Machine Learning at the University of Limerick and Head of Lero's Biocomputing and Developmental Systems Group. So I guess to look at um, some of your work, when you look at examples from science fiction like the likes of Farscape or Star Trek Voyager or these things, they they sort of take the idea that in the far future, we are looking at this overlap between physical matter and things that we take for granted at the moment as being machine-like. Of course, in in those examples, it's, uh, you know, biological brains replacing mechanical brains, if you will. Now, of course, we're not at that level. We're not even looking at that level. But does that principle hold... uh, some water to the to the work that you are doing at the moment. Well, it definitely does because what it really comes down to is what is the raw material that we're we're producing. So you know we're working with these these genes and then we're mapping them onto some sort of structure. Now we're really agnostic as to what that structure is going to be. So, for example, one of the things that we've looked at is producing circuits that can then be rendered in an FPGA, a field programmable gate array. So this is a reconfigurable piece of silicon. 
So that's actually, you know, already getting close to to the kind of Farscape situation that you're talking about. Because this is something that is producing software. You know, it's evolved in, in one of our simulations. But when it's finished, it actually creates an actual piece of hardware that can then exist in the real world. So, you know, what's missing is a step to go to something that's actually genuinely biological. But it's kind of the next logical step, I think. So when you're looking at the process behind, um, you know, manipulating genes towards a towards a solution, how easy is it and how long does it take? Well, it's surprisingly easy because literally what you do is you can, you can kind of splice these things in any way you want. So you can you know, take the first half of one and then the second half of another and put them, put them together. So this all happens in software as a simulation. So it happens virtually instantaneously. Where the magic happens is then being able to take the output of that, so the, the child offspring, and be able to interpret it in some way so that you can actually test it. You know, produce it and a program out of it. Hmm. So, uh, in terms then of, uh, we'll say, for example, we've identified a, a, a problem of fairly modest complexity, um, and you, you have a model applied to it that that is an all right fit. Um, how how long are we looking at in terms of a timeline in in broad terms towards an inefficient solution becomes an elegant and efficient solution? Well, we, we typically measure things in numbers of generations. So this, this is where we've had a whole population of these individuals, each of whom is a, a potential solution to our problem. And they all, of course, they all start off relatively mediocre at best. So to, we then test an entire generation of these. So typically we're looking at anything from 200 to 5,000 generations to evolve something that's, that's satisfactory. So, uh, and when we're talking about generations, um, you know, naturally enough, we're not talking about generations as people understand them. So we're, we're talking about iterations of, of genes. So how, how quickly can, can that actually happen? It typically can happen in anything from seconds to minutes. So it's, it's more like you're manipulating fruit flies than human beings, for example. You know, we can go through thousands of generations in a single day. So if you have a, a well-defined problem uh, and you have an initial genetic solution, it's, it's a case that uh, each subsequent generation just gets better and better at solving the problem once you know what the problem looks like. Would that be accurate? It is. As long as you have some good way of testing these potential solutions and then ranking them relative to each other, because you know, we want the, the best ones to propagate their genes throughout the population. So what you expect is, or what you experience then is a kind of a slow improvement over time as the population is, is evolving towards a solution. Okay, so let's look at some applications of, of your model that, that have been quite successful so far, uh, one of which I, I think will be quite close to the, to the hearts of consumers, whether they know it or not. And um, that's in flash memory. So, you know, it's something that we all carry around in our pockets. Some, some of it is actually better than others. So how is what, what you're working on applicable to flash, say, you know, the hard drive in our smartphones? Well, first of all, the... The problem with flash um, that a lot of people don't actually realize is that flash memory will wear out. So the more you use it, the more likely it is to actually lose its contents. So your beloved photographs that have been sitting in your phone for the last four years, they're not going to stay there forever because that flash is degrading and it will eventually lose its contents. So what we try to do is to make that flash better. 
And the reason we're in a position to be able to do this is that the flash memory is controlled by a whole bunch of different parameters. So these are things like what sort of voltage should we be using or how long should the voltages be turned on, all this type of thing. So what our individuals are evolving in this case is the best set of parameters such that the flash can do a particular job. Now that job might be to last as long as possible or it might be to run as fast as possible. So depending on how that flash is going to be used in the field, we can produce a different set of parameters that will control it. Right, so you can potentially have sort of high-performance hard drives, if you will, that will have sort of a fairly low shelf life, which would be sort of a boon in, you know, maybe the graphics or the effects industries. Or you can have flash that will be much longer-lasting, which would suit, you know, the average person on the street who is looking to back up their photos. That's right. So people particularly call that cold flash. So the, the kind of trade-off that you have is that it doesn't run as fast. So it takes slightly longer to get your, your data back, but it's more likely to last longer. Then the hot flash, which is the kind of memory that you'd expect to see in in large data centers, you know, for example, banks or the likes of Netflix, they expect that flash to run out or to wear out, but they want it to be as fast as possible because so many people are pulling data back from us all the time. Mm. So, um, you know, the, you know, the consumer grade PC that you're buying off the shelf, that is naturally going to have um, components that I guess the manufacturers would call you know, cost efficient, but, but in your mind, it, it's sort of accident waiting to happen. It is because the big problem is when people don't back up the contents of the flash. So, you know, it's, it's nice having the, the very fast SSD in your machine because of course it's, you know, it's very fast, it uses less, less electricity, and it's very quiet, but you also need to back everything up onto an old-fashioned magnetic disk. Just because they they have that uh, increased longevity to it. I mean, I think we've all seen examples of sort of hundred-year-old hard drives having data rescued off them, so they do have that longevity factor. They do, and that's that's the key difference between flash and magnetic drives. You know, so that the magnetic drives are slower, but fundamentally they are more reliable in terms of maintaining their data yeah so if somebody is backing up it still makes sense just to use a a magnetic disk if it's something that doesn't require um, uh, high performance it's always going to be more reliable in the long term so when you're looking at how to approach manufacturers then and say look we know you're doing x with flash but here's how to make it faster here's how to make it more reliable um what kind of reception are you getting? Or do you get the sort of the, you know, that's nice, but how much is it going to cost us? Uh, or is there very much a, okay, let's sit down and look at how we can make this better? Well, it's changed over time. So we've been doing this for, for a couple of years. And when we started first, there was a really heavy dose of skepticism because the attitude was basically, we don't really care because nobody's keeping these drives for, for 10 years. Mm. Now, however, though, as the flash is getting more modern, it's actually getting worse rather than better. And that's because they're, they're cramming more data onto the same size of silicon. So now even the manufacturers realize, you know, there's a problem lurking here with this flash. So we need the flash to be as good as possible. So we've gone from, you know, very heavy doses of skepticism to, okay, we're prepared to at least listen to how you're doing this so that we can actually make the flash as good as it can be. And are you finding that people are thinking sector specific, like when it, when it comes to sort of making the, the high end real 
workhorse kind of PCs versus the the lower end laptops, for example? Is there a divergence in sort of accepting the problem exists? Well, they all accepted it exists, but it's a different problem for these different sectors. So the people who are making the the low end laptops, you know, they're not so concerned about how how fast that SSD is going to be. But to them, it's a disaster if it ever loses the data. So there's one set of parameters will keep these guys happy. Whereas the people who are making SSDs that will go into a data center, they don't expect those to last for a couple of years, but they want them to be as fast as possible. And this suits us. Because, of course, our organisms who are evolving these parameters, to them, it's just a slightly different version of the same problem. You know, without, now we want you to last for two years, but you need to be very fast, as opposed to last for 10 years and be reasonably fast. I think what's interesting uh, about your work is that it has applications equally in the, the hardware space, but also in med tech. Um, so tell, me, uh, tell us a little bit about the kind of work that's going on in the medical sector. Sure. So what's nice about these methods is simply by changing the, the fitness function, you know, the target that we're trying to evolve towards, we can completely change the problem that we're looking at. So the particular medical application we're looking at is trying to diagnose mammograms. So the ideal thing that we would like to have here is that we can show our system a mammogram that it hasn't seen before, and then it can accurately predict whether or not that mammogram is likely to contain uh, cancerous growth and what part of the mammogram is likely to have it. Right, so it's it's sort of, um, whenever you're dealing with machine learning, you, you, you need that sort of problem-solving space, but it's always backed up by some sort of data resource. I mean, I know when uh, Watson went on and won Jeopardy, it was relying primarily on Wikipedia as, as the back end. So when you're looking at a medical solution, what, what is sort of, what fills that, that gap? What fills that function? Well, that's a tricky thing to get because we have to, we have to learn from original mammograms. So we have a huge collection of mammograms, something about, I think about a million different mammograms that we've got from a hospital in Britain, the Royal Surrey Hospital. And these have been already examined by healthcare professionals and they've been marked as either being positive, which means they do contain some sort of cancerous growth, or negative, meaning that there were were normal mammograms and didn't present any problems. So that's what our system will, will learn from. And it can generalize then from that data to the, the new mammograms that will come into it. Um, so that presents a really interesting challenge from a, an automotive systems perspective, because um, ultimately the doctor is responsible for the diagnosis. But you have a system that can potentially deliver one without any, any human involvement. So what kind of relationship um, does the technology have with the healthcare professional in this case, where it's not, uh, it's not desirable to have that decision made solely by a machine? That's right. It really acts as an advisor to the healthcare professional. So, you know, these are people who are dealing with literally hundreds of these in a single day. So there's there's a real problem of kind of fatigued distraction for these guys because there's there's so much data coming at them. So what our system does is it basically will mark up the mammogram, saying, look, here's a spot on this mammogram that, that just doesn't look right to me. And then the healthcare professional is the person who will make that final call to say, look, yes, we actually need to bring this patient back in and do a closer examination. Or they might say, no, I, I'm 
confident that this is not a, a problem so we can just pass that information back into the system so the next time it sees something similar it's less likely to make that mistake do you think it's uh, it is possible that as we see increased automation uh, come into hospitals that you could increasingly see this sort of decision making made um i guess from the per- for, without any human involvement it's possible i'm not sure it's the most desirable thing though mm. you know it's I'd be very slow to ever remove the, the human factor from these sorts of decisions simply because it can have such a, a massive impact on somebody's life. However, though, in, say, developing countries, you know, that simply don't have access to healthcare professionals, something like this can be extremely valuable, you know, because now it lacks as a kind of the, I suppose, the, the first line of defense against these sorts of illnesses. Uh, and I guess seeing as you sort of brought in wider climbs, I mean, this isn't um, an approach to computing that is limited to uh, to Lero. It is spread across the world. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, other sectors that you found um, sort of quite surprising or problems that have surprised you uh, in terms of using genetic programming. Well, a lot of people have done some work in the in financial areas. And the reason this is such an appropriate thing to do is, you know, there's lots of financial data floating around. So, for example, historical data as to, you know, how share prices have changed over the last couple of months. And they've used systems like ours to develop programs that could look at that data and make a prediction as to what will actually happen next. So, you know, it's a different data set, a different type of, of program, but it's fundamentally the same algorithm because it still has a population of these individuals and they're all trying to evolve something that will be good at making a prediction about that finance. Okay, so when we're looking then into sort of the, the future of genetic uh, programming, what do you see as being, you know, that final step? You know, do, do you see, to bring it back to the Farscape, the Star Trek example, um, are we going to see genetic programming even take over uh, automotive systems like self-driving cars, which we've, we've talked about um, earlier in the show? I think where they'll be used is for generating programs in areas that humans find very difficult. So, you know, autonomous vehicles, I think, is, is a perfect example for that, or things like parallel programming, you know, where there's multiple parts of the same program all operating at the same time. And it's, it's very difficult for a normal human to try and keep all that straight in their head. Whereas if this is running on an automated system, you know, it's more likely to be able to deal with that sort of complexity. That was Niall Kitson chatting with some of the researchers from Lero, the Irish Software Research Centre. If you'd like to find out more about the centre and its work on automotive systems, visit their website at lero.ie. That's it for this week and indeed for Christmas. Both Niall and myself, thank you for joining us throughout the year and be assured we're getting set for another big, big year in 2018, kicking straight in with a special 2018 preview show in January and of course full coverage of the Young Scientists exhibition. And of course all year round you can get the latest Irish Tech News with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show online and broadcast every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. On to next year from myself Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Christmas and take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie 
Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech. Oh.